Film Society of Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're featuring discussions about two films nominated at this year's Academy Awards, which are airing this Sunday. First up, you'll hear a conversation with the writer-director and cast of Mudbound, which is up for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Song. The film had its New York premiere at last year's New York Film Festival. The following talk took place during the film's NYFF press conference, and features writer-director Dee Reese and cast members Carrie Mulligan, Jason Mitchell, Garrett Hedlund, Jason Clark, Rob Morgan, and Best Supporting Actress nominee Mary J. Blige. After that, you'll hear our Q&A with Ildiko Yeti, the director of On Body and Soul, which is competing in the Best Foreign Language Film category. The film had its New York premiere this week in our Film Comment Select series. And following the screening, Film Comment Editor-in-Chief Nicholas Rapold moderated a Q&A with Inyeti. Both Mudbound and On Body and Soul are now streaming on Netflix. Let's go now to our press conference for Mudbound from the 55th New York Film Festival followed by our Q&A with On Body and Soul director, Ildiko Inyeti. Okay. And Jonathan Banks isn't here, but he was pappy, and he's amazing. And he loves you all. I just have one or two questions, because I know all these people have a lot of questions. Um, how long ago did you start working on this project or read the novel? Yeah, so this project came to me in 2015. It was a script by Virgil Williams, who wrote the first draft of this. And um, Cassie Nelways was the producer who brought it to me. And then I knew that Macro, Charles King were involved, so that prompted me to go back and read the novel by Hilary Jordan. And the thing that struck me most were the interior monologues. And I think that the things that people say to themselves are sometimes more interesting than the things they say to other people. And so that was the reason I wanted to get involved, the multiplicity of voices and the, and the, and the, the different points of view. So. And did you know going in that it was going to be really an epic movie? Well, I mean, I feel like this film, like when you look at this ensemble cast, this could have been a movie just about two brothers. You could have gotten two hours out of that. Or this could have been a movie just about a marriage. We could have gotten two hours out of that. Or this could have been a movie just about two soldiers returning from war. Or this could have been a movie just about this family trying to, like, trying to better themselves. So this story is about all those things. So I think, you know, in the relationships and in the characters and the faces, like I saw the scope there, and that's what I'm most interested in as an, as an artist. And were you thinking about classical melodrama, because this, this film seems to me to revive classical melodrama for the present day in its relationship to racism and sexism and the family. It depends on if you define melodrama as a pejorative. Like no, not at that, all. Okay. Yeah, no, so I just saw it as like good American cinema. I wanted this to be an old fashioned film. I wanted this to be a film like, you know, they don't make anymore. I wanted to break out of like the 90 minute artificial construct and just really like let the voices ring out, like let the story live, develop each character completely and get the audience invested in each character so the plot kind of becomes secondary, so yeah. Okay, let's have some questions out here. There's a mic going around, so wait for it right down in the middle here. Hi, that was amazing. Um, just wondering if each of the actors could go through and talk about how you got involved in the project and what drew you to your characters. Is it for a particular actor or you want all of them? 
Okay. <laughs> okay, well, um, I was approached by Ms. D. Reese <laughs> through my agency um, with, this, with the script, and um, I was already a huge fan of D. Reese and her work. And you know, when I got the script, I read the script. I, you know, I was already in from from the gate. And then I read the script and I read how saw how powerful it was, and just saw how the ending had like a positive ending, and sort of the the character with Florence, and realized that Florence is my family. Florence is a lot of women, and you know, in, in the whole in the in the world, woman that loves her family. And um, I just really was interested in, in in the film because of the amazing script that Dee wrote. And that's how I got involved. Maybe I wasn't supposed to say all of that. I was supposed to tell you that I got the script, but through the agency, but there you go. Um, <clears throat> I was, uh, I, I read the script. I fell in love with it. I, I thought it was a beautiful, painful, brutal, poetic story. And I wanted to be a part of it. And, and obviously, I, then I watched uh, Pariah, which Dee had done, and I knew I wanted to work with this director. How y'all feel? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, of course I wanted to work with Dee. I wanted to work with this amazing cast. But all this at the time was, you know, sort of over my head. I knew Dee was a, a real go-getter type director. But this was the first thing that I had been offered that was anything serious. You know, I had, you know, a couple small things here and there where I could pop my head in. But this was something real, and, and they were like, you know, just check it out. And I was like, I'm telling you I'm going to be down. But they gave me the script, and I was like, yo, I got to be a part of this. You know, I, I, I definitely have to be a part of this because it's, you know, a voice for my family. It's a voice for a lot of black men. And it's also a beautiful voice. You know, it's a, um, a guy who was militant and at the same time chose love at the end of the day. So... You gotta love that, you know, and I'm up here with this beautiful cast. I did my first film actually with Jason Clark ever, which is epic for me, you know. So yes, this is this is just really cool, you know. So um I, I had to be a part of history because I knew it would be history. And D might not say she knew it was gonna be epic. <laughs> but I knew it was gonna be epic, especially with D leading the ship. Oh yeah. <laughs> epic trash. Yeah. Um I yeah, got the script. Um, I, I wasn't sort of, I'd done a couple of period films right before that and I was sort of nervous. I wanted to do something contemporary in modern day and, um, and so I was resistant to the idea of doing another period drama but, um, but I saw Pariah and I thought it was a perfect film. I thought it was perfect storytelling and really uh, deeply emotional but without being sentimental and, and then reading this script and reading this book, I thought... Um, well, I just wanted to be a part of a D. Reese film. It, the character wasn't initially anything to me. At, at first, it was through working with D that I found the character and, and the relationships really moving. But initially, it was just whatever she's doing next, I want to be in it. It came down to a Skype. Actually, D and I Skyped when D was in a parking lot <laughs> in upstate New York, literally in a small car. Um, and, you know, what you said at the beginning, epic, is that's it. I was terrified as an actor that this was going to shrink into, as you said, you know, a two-hander D, you know, and you can obviously go with the obvious narrative here and it becomes a film which is sentimental and we've seen before. And I really wanted to see whether this woman could deliver what was on the page with the resources we had. You know, it was still putting it together. There was, you know, they were still trying to put this film together and they needed actors and everybody to come forward to do it. 
And so that was the beginning, you know, of, of, of you know, seeing whether we could make an epic film. The second part was, you know, I, I, Henry's a, you know, a good, kind-hearted, decent racist who, who is, you know, but is that, and also benefits from it. You know, he financially benefits from it in the, in the society. And um, I also, you know, and I was terrified and fascinated to play that. I'm, I'm sick of sentimental, you know, here's our film and then we've got to have a good white guy, you know, to show the opposite to balance. I love that the story, and, and then Dee, totally more so in the film, did not let anybody off the hook. It built and it just, it kept focused to that very, very end, you know, and that horrific act at the end, but then that incredible monologue and, and, and what Jason was talking about, up the stairs, and, you know, and, and, and just the idea of that struggle is, is it's, it's part of life, it's part of the meaning of life, and it doesn't have to be a bitter or an angry thing either. And, uh, and, and Dee in that car park <laughs> on Skype where she was, I think she was at Home Depot or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just just built the road and 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 convinced me that this was going to be what I think we've made. I just kept dropping f bombs until he said yes. <laughs> um, yeah, D and I, we we've worked together on Pariah, um, so that was like my initiation into Sundance. And that was an amazing experience. Um, I believe it put me in a, in a beautiful light to help my career also. So when Dee reached out and said, hey, Rob Morgan, I have this character that you have to play. And I was like, man, Dee's calling me? Yes, I'll do it, no problem, because I know it's gonna be epic. I already knew that just from working with her on Pariah, from appreciating her work in Bessie, and then having this cast right here to play with also, you know, I mean, I get to be opposite Mary J. Blige, you know, young kid from the streets of D.C. You get to hug Mary J. Blige as your wife. <laughs> Who the hell wouldn't do that? You know what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I just knew it was just going to be a, a, a phenomenal film. Um, and I'm thankful to be a part of it. I think it's a special piece that is rarely seen in American history. You know, we always see black people either enslaved or black people getting hosed down or dogs sicked on them screaming civil rights, please, please, please. We hardly ever get to see that sharecropping era, you know, that, that foggy gray period of they say that you're free, but you have to do this in order to exist here. And we still have this thing called Jim Crow laws. And then when I read the script and then read the manuscript novel by uh, Hillary Jordan, Mudbound, I just said, man, I gotta be a part of this. You know, this is history. Thank you. And how long did you work with all these people as an ensemble? Or did you shoot separate families separately and then together? How did you do that? No, so it came, to very, it came together very quickly. We only had um, maybe like a week of prep, you know, including like wardrobe and everything. So I mean, these guys literally like went in for fittings. And then, you know, just in terms of like the material, like I just trust, you know, that everybody was gonna, you know, bring their own personal histories to it. And, you know, the actors, like, you know, I trust the actors, the actors are prepared, the actors are smart. And so I'm always interested in seeing everyone's kind of like first take. So I let them come with their own take on the material and then we, we just, we, we just kind of shaped it. And so I would say just by way of prep, I just do like these relationship workshops where I try to do like one-on-one -on -one pairings where it's their actors working together and it's getting to the core. So for example, with um, Mary and Carrie who played Florence and Laura, I saw the core of that relationship being power. And so I just had them just square off and do a repetition back and forth. You have the power, now you have the power, and just keep giving that back to each other. So now that they've got that core, 
they've like seen each other and allowed each other to be seen. And then with um, the guys, with uh, Garrett Hedlund as Jamie, Jason as Henry, and Jonathan Banks as Pappy, just, just put them together in my office in like a father-son mosh pit and just kind of, you know, let them tell their father that they love him and try to get him to say that he loves them and, you know, to try to build this kind of shared history together. And then with Hap and Florence, same thing, like invited them to kind of like build an imagined romantic history so they could just like see and be seen and, you know, just, just hold eye contact for 60 seconds. You know, I'm not interested in like beating the words to death. I trust they're gonna come like having that. And um, yeah, I just like to work that way. And like with Rob and, um, and Jason, actually we did like a really uncomfortable exercise where I, I wanna go straight to the edge of it. And so I had them, you know, for me, nigger had to be a noun. It had to flow like cow, truck, dog, pig, sky, nigger, water, tree. It, like it couldn't be a hiccup. It couldn't be a hitch. It had to be matter of fact. It had to be every day. It couldn't be like made a point of every single time it was said. And so for them, I had them just square off and repeat back to each other. You're a good nigger. Thank you, sir. You're a good nigger. Thank you, sir. Over and over again. <laughs> and you could see like Jason hating to say it and Rob hating to hear it. And like, I thought they're going to come to blows at one point. But you know, <laughs> it was just like, you know, we had to go straight to the discomfort so that in the script, it's matter of fact. It's moving at the speed of life. And it's not like, you know, a sentimental polemic, you know, it's not this like presentational, you know, picture of the era, you know, I really wanted to get behind the mythology of the greatest generation and, you know, and just really kind of understand what these people's lives were like. So, yeah. Can I just add to that quickly? I think it was super important with every, like with the, with the crew, the people that Dee surrounded herself with Rachel, you know, with Mary, Jace and Rob. Rob Morgan in particular, because he'd worked with Dee before, laid it down straight up. This was some serious material. We had very little time to get into it. And it was, it was the commitment, I think you hear it from these guys when they relate it, that, that really dragged us into this world. This is, you know, this is for real and you guys better get in here and get this done and, and, and do it right and, and do it at, you know, at 100 mile an hour the best you can. And, and, and uh, the intelligence of Dee in, in pulling it all off. But I just want to say that, you know, it, it, it really was, as you said, the, the exercise you did and the commitment from the people that you brought to it ensured that everybody had to come in and really commit to it. Right here, in the middle, yeah. Teamwork, make the dream work, baby. Uh, Dee, the film looks incredible. And I'd be curious to hear why... Um, you felt that Rachel Morrison was the right choice as your director of photography and what you kind of consider her aesthetic and style and how you guys collaborated and worked together to create the look of the film. Yeah, so Rachel was amazing and I wanted her because I'd seen her work in Fruitvale Station and Dope and actually um, I'd worked with like Lena Motto and Bessie and he had just worked with her on confirmation. So he's like, oh, you gotta work with Rachel, she's amazing. And so I wanted to work with her because I wanted like this feeling of realism and Rachel was very thoughtful in the photography of the film. She came with a bunch of WPA references and you know, like my references, my references were like Robert Frank, even like Mary Frank, his wife who works in sculpture. And so we really wanted like the palette of the film to really fit the period and I knew that she would be great at that and she was able to get these old Panavision C-series lenses. So we put this old glass on a digital medium, that, so, which then makes it feel, you know, of the time. And, you know, just the palette's like really kind of desaturated. And, you know, even like between the houses, like with the McAllen family, the idea was that it felt a little cooler, even though they have more, it's less cozy. And with the Jackson family, it's tone on tone on tone. So it's brown on brown on orange, you know, so it's like the same palette, so it feels warmer, it feels more loving, even though they have less, their home is more together in a way. So those are the kind of things that we worked with. And she was able, like we, we shot an actual sharecropper's cabin. So David Bond 
Bamba, our, produ our production designer, convinced the landowner to let us move his cabins back off the road, because otherwise we were right against the road and the levee. And so he moved these cabins out into a field. So the upside of that is we're working in actual sharecroppers' cabins with very little space. And so, you know, Rachel had to get holes in the ceiling just to get light into the, the place. It was really hard to, like, light. And then, like, just, like, the contrast between, like, inside and outside, we let just kind of, like, fall off sometimes. So she was a great collaborator in that regard and just really made this, like, you know, not feel like history, but feel present, but it felt like this living kind of photographic, you know, national memory in a way. And so working with her was great. And like I said, like on the quick schedule, like I needed a DP who could light fast and could go straight to realism. And, you know, our camera language is really um, subjective because with each person we want it to like really be in their world. So when we're with Henry, we see the field as Henry sees it. We see opportunity, we see commerce. When we're with Hap, we see the field as Hap sees it. We see drudgery, we see futility. And so just, you know, committing to that camera style, really being in with each character, you know, was kind of key to like how we worked with each of the characters. And like, for example, like Jamie and Ronzel, it was like an evolution. So it was important that, you know, initially, you know, we photographed them like a far apart. So even in the car, they're not looking at each other. Then we first get to the barn, they're far apart. Then the second moment in a barn, you know, they come closer. Then the last time, we're shooting like backy French, French, French overs so that there's an intimacy there when he breaks the secret of, you know, when they, when they talk about their sexuality, which is like this taboo thing. So yeah, no, Rachel's amazing and a master of what she does. And it was just really important to have many women behind the camera. You know, Mako Kamitsuno is my editor who edited Pariah. And the editing on a piece like this is instrumental because it's these like six different voices. And then uh, Tamar Khalil my film composer. She also worked with me on Pariah and Bessie. And this is her first film score. And I think I'll, the only thing I said to her was dark strings. And she comes up with this like, you know, orchestral ensemble and like makes the film sound like it came out of the ground. And um, Pud Kuzak was our sound recordist, another woman who gave us this perfect clean sound, despite having wind, rain, and elements like beating up the mics. And then uh, Angie Wells was our makeup artist who, you know, doing a really natural look is like really hard. You know, they look like they have nothing on at all, but that she was able to give all my actresses like across the ensemble, like a really clean period kind of feel, so. Um, yeah, I credit all my department heads, so yeah. And, and Michael Boyd, sorry, was my costume designer. Not a woman, but I had to work with him because I loved him on Bessie. And, um, <laughs> and, and he makes costumes not look like costumes. They have to feel like lived in. And uh, David Bamba, production designer, who's a southerner, so it's important to have like, a southerner who really kind of understood like these lives. Yeah, over here. First of all, I want to say that this is a powerful beautiful film that the acting ensemble is is extraordinary and that um everybody was crying in this row <laughs> um it was it's a beautiful movie and i thank you so much for making it um i'm very curious about netflix as a producer and a distributor what are they like to work with how much control do they want how much freedom and support do they give you what is it like uh, dealing with Netflix? Because, I mean, this whole new business about Netflix, Hulu, and, and Amazon, I'm really curious about it. So, so Netflix acquired the film at Sundance. It was in, this film was independently produced by Macro, which is Charles King's company, Cassie Elways, and um, Black Bear Pictures put in some money, so, and, and, and Armory put in some money. So it was independently produced, and Netflix acquired it. And for me, going into the sale, I had a different kind of idea of them because I had, you know, Pariah, you know, was kept alive by Netflix. So my previous film, you know, even though Focus Features had acquired it and released it, you know, in the limited kind of platform release, like people kept seeing that film because it was on Netflix. 
So my idea was, was of them was a place for longevity, a place for auteurs. So I was thrilled because with Netflix, we get a simultaneous global audience. Like people in Texas will see this at the same time as people in Portugal. And, you know, and beyond that, you know, I think the other studios were afraid of this film. They didn't want to touch it. You know, it's a huge ensemble. Like whose face is going to be in the poster? How much money are you going to put into that? And so Netflix has been extremely supportive of me as an artist. And like, I've never felt more support in terms of like the marking of a film and having a voice in the trailer of the film and, you know, putting seven faces on the fucking poster. You know, like most studios wouldn't do that. They'd make me choose two faces. So Ted Sarandos is a visionary. And I think like Netflix is going to be the place for like edgy, you know, um, challenging content. And it's going to be a place for, for auteurs. So that's been my experience with them. Shout out to Netflix. Yeah, right here. <laughs> um, the, the film premiered uh, at Sundance, which was the obviously right before the uh, Trump administration uh, began. It's only taken on more resonance as we've seen what happened over the course of this year. Uh, coming out as it is now, uh, how do you hope it speaks to the current climate? What do you hope people take away uh, from the film? I hope that people take away the fact that we can't begin to tackle our collective history until we interrogate our own personal histories. And I think a more expansive way to think about the ideas in this film is about inheritance. Like, it's not just about race. It's about, like, what ideas we've inherited, what attitudes we've inherited, and what we're unconsciously passing on. And so until we can be mindful of what we're passing on, we can't kind of look at the larger tapestry, like, although each of our lives is a single thread, we're all weaving the same thing. We're all connected to what happened before. And so I hope people, like, understand that. Like, we're not separate from our past. We are all actors in the present. Like, we are not passively watching it. We, we, we're all actors in what we're creating, so. Uh, this is a question for the uh, director. Uh, you're going to become a mentor for a lot of young filmmakers. And there's a short playing here at the festival, which is probably the best short of all, called My Nephew Emmett, which is about the seizing of Emmett Till in the 1950s. It was done by a graduate class at NYU that was mentored by and indeed taught by Spike Lee. Uh, and it was sh shot in a sharecropper's cabin, not probably that far from where you were working. I'm wondering if you are aware of that short, and if you are, what kind of advice and aid and mentorship you can give to the young filmmaker Kevin Wilson Jr. who made that short, which is, would be in a sense a beautiful companion to your superb film if it uh, ever could work out that way in theatrical exhibition. No, I wasn't aware of it. I haven't seen anything while I'm here yet, but yeah, get me a screen. I'd love to check it out. And just for any filmmaker, I would say, you just have to like write your way into the picture. Or if writing is not your thing, if you're a shooter, like shoot your way into the picture. You have to have some craft that, that gets you into the game. Like as a young filmmaker, no one's gonna come looking for you. No one's like, you know what we need? An NYU graduate, you know? So, <laughs> you, <laughs> so you, you, you have to like create the thing that people wanna make and, and like just test your way in. So I would just say, if, if he's a writer, keep writing. If he's a shooter, keep shooting. You have to like, you know, bring your own ball and start your own game, so, yeah. Yeah, in the middle, in a dark shirt, yeah. Uh, first, congratulations and thank you. That was incredible. Um, my question is about the schedule, the production schedule. You mentioned that it was pretty tight. Uh, clearly, the film is really tied to the elements with the, the heat, the rain. I'm just curious how you handled that. 
Yes, I'll let these guys talk. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I'll just say we had uh, 28 days in plantation country. We shot an old sugar plantation, and of those 28 days, we lost two to natural rain. We needed like narrative rain, like not like unasked for rain. <laughs> so we got a lot of unasked for rain. And you know, like for example, the scene where we shot um, where um, Jamie pretends to run Ronzel off the road, like that was scripted for like a nice, beautiful daylight scene where you know they have this moment, and then they sit on the tire well and look across the field, and he breaks the news that he has a kid. But because it rained, we had to make a decision to like just shoot in the rain, embrace it, and then reblock that scene in the cab of the truck. But of course, by that time, it had stopped raining. So then we brought in our rain wand to complete the scene. And I actually think it worked more, more intimately. It's more cozy. It feels like a, like, like a confessional booth in there. And um, so in terms of the fields, we had water trucks that had to come out and flood those furrows. In order to see the furrows, you got to flood them. And then you know, we had, you know, instead of greensmen, we had brownsmen, whose job it was to chop up the mud and keep it moist and interesting and narrative. And then <laughs> we had to um, then cover our tire tracks. So like the mud itself was a character, and it was baking hot. So like by the time we finished one side of the scene, we'd turn around and be baked to a crust. So then we had to bring the water trucks back out, flood again, chop it up. So it was like a dark comedy in the making of it. But, um, but yeah, and then we shot two days in Budapest, Hungary, shot the war scene. So we shot the tank battle like before lunch. Then after lunch, we shot um, the village scenes. And then we shot Ronzel getting his kid like, like, like the next day. And then we shot a day at the Long Island. Um, there, there's, a world there, there, there's a World War II museum and we shot an actual B-25. So when you do all the math, technically it's like 29 days, it was like 28, minus two for rain, plus two in Budapest, plus one in Long Island. So it's like a 29 day shoot and you know, yeah, she I would love 90 million me. more dollars and like, you know, 30 more days, but this is what we got. Okay, down here. Hello, I'm so moved by the film, it's hard to formulate a uh, strong question, but I'd like to ask more about the adaptation process um, from the book to the script because a number of you said that you had also read the book and then once you had the script and started shooting, um, was there any, were you, you know, uh, word for word to the screenplay and so forth? Yeah, yeah, so Virgil Williams wrote the first adaptation of the script, and it was based, and I didn't see it until 2015, so he'd been working on it for some time before. So reading his script is what prompted me to go back and read the book and see what else was there. And then I rewrote the script before we shot, and so um, actors had seen things that they wanted pulled in. So like Carrie Mulligan had found this passage about how Jamie could see her, and so we put that in. And then Jason found this great passage about Henry's kind of meditation like on the land. So I pulled that in there. And then just the whole sequence about Hat breaking his leg, like I thought that should be included and like I wanted to use it narratively as this battle of home versus battle abroad. And it was important to like have it. And Hap's kind of occupation as a preacher, I thought it was important to include that because it showed this kind of faith in this guy working on this literal kind of like, like, like half-built faith, like the church we left empty, like in the book it's done, but I wanted it incomplete, so it's more symbolic. And you know, in the book, he's working on the mule shed when he falls, but I thought it was more interesting him working on church, you know, like that he falls. And so, and I, then I wrote a lot of original monologues for the characters, like when Hap's meditation on what good is a deed, I wrote that to do the play on word between deed and deeds, and the fact that no matter how much he's invested in this land, he'll never be vested. And then like when, Lawrence, when, when, when Florence is going to um, care for Laura's children, I wrote the meditation, I remember my mother blue, because it's important to hear that cognitive dissonance of her doing the very things she, she said she would never do. 
and then like Ron Zell's Leaving for War, I wrote that scene because it's important to establish Ron Zell not just as a son of Hap and Florence, but as a son of the community. And this is why he's missed so much. And then this is why Hap clings to him when he comes back. And then just lots of detail moments, like with Hap and Florence slow dancing. I needed to establish this couple as a loving, sexual couple who talk about other things than white people. And like with like Florence and Ron Zell, like I, I wrote the candy bar scene to establish that they have a special connection and it's character revealing because we know, then we, sh we, we see that Florence is like this kind of self-sacrificing person who will only eat one square or who wants to share it. And so I just really wanted to give dimension to the Jackson family. Like they didn't just come with the house. You know, it's not just about, you know, the circumstances of their existence, that they have agency, they have ideas about who they are. And so um, that's then what we shot, so, yeah. I have a question for the two mothers in the film. Um, and that is, there's such an incredible balance in this film. It would have been so easy to show, well, these mothers are the reasons these two families survive. And they are. But you as characters never do that. You never know that. And I thought that that was very interesting layers in the performances. That, and so I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about how you found that balance, either of you, both of you. Well, I mean, I believe it was Dee's direction that helped us to find a balance, but also knowing women, knowing my mom, knowing my grand, you know, knowing women. And that's how, you, you know, you find, that's how I found the balance. I really don't have a lot to say. I just know that it was Dee's, Dee's direction is what, you know, helped me to find a, find a balance. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> it was the first job I did since actually, it was the first time I played a mum and actually was a mum, so that was interesting. Um, I, you know, played mothers before without having children, and this, when we filmed I had an eight-month-old, so it was the first time I, I felt like, you know, that was a change. Um, I found the relationship between these two characters so profoundly moving, and that, and that really was from day one in rehearsals with Dee, when she had Mary and I confront each other, and, um, and first of all, just to say, just working with Mary, um, was really extraordinary. She's just unbelievably open and honest and vulnerable, and so I found that connection really quickly. So that was a real, just a pleasure to work with. But um, I think that was one of the most powerful things was that that bond of motherhood that you know everything in society telling you to despise each other or to uh, to fear each other, and actually just your common experience of motherhood just being so binding you can't deny it and. Um, so yeah, I, it was a, it was a, and it was a relationship I'd never played before in a film. You know, it was a sisterhood to it that was really powerful. We have time for two others, maybe one in the middle, right there. Never asked a question before, so I'm nervous. Um, <laughs> um, the parallels was what spoke to me most um, between the mothers and also. Um, the male characters as well, um, and I know that you got you had gone through some exercises between the two characters to try to um, uh, encourage that parallel. Um, but I wanted to say, outside of the exercises between the, the actors, um, how else were you able to illustrate those parallels? Because I think it's important to illustrate that, especially in today's climate. So, 
Well, I mean, outside the exercises, you know, I just kind of like let them, like we just kind of found it on set. Like I don't, you know, we just kind of like this through the blocking is through the, you know, in the moment where, you know, Florence is kind of like, you know, bedside tending the girls where, you know, Laura's next door, like having coffee. I, just, I think it's just something you find like in the blocking of it and, the, and like the choreography and, you know, between all the characters, like my, the, the attraction was like this kind of dark symbiosis where they weren't opposites, they were actually this reflection. So both Henry and Hap have this love of the land and they both have this sense of disinheritance, you know. Uh, Henry, because he thinks Pappy has sold away the land he's supposed to have, so he clings onto this. And Hap, because, I mean, he literally has his bones in the land, his blood in the land, his sweat in the land, and, and he can never take title to it. And the two women are linked by the sense of motherhood, you know, and, you know, Florence has to come to terms with, like, love can be a tool, you know, like, by loving Laura's children, she can keep her own family intact, and not just a motherhood, they're linked by economic, you know, disempowerment. They both have husbands that try to tell them what to do, and they both are disobedient, you know. Henry says, you know, Hap needs to pull himself up, and, and Laura's like, right, straight to the cash box, you know? <laughs> and then, um, you know, Hap tells Florence, like, you're not going to work for them. She's like, I already said, yeah. So they're kind of linked in this kind of, like, small rebellion, and then the two sons are linked by the trauma of war when there's not quite a name for it. Maybe it's called shell-shocked, but they're both not understood, you know, and they're both expected to step back inside this context in which they no longer fit. And in a way, to me, they become more brothers than Henry and Jamie become brothers. So it's, it's fun to play with that parallel of brotherhood and like what is brotherhood and so yeah one more and it's right there finally so uh, congratulations it's uh, I mean I have so many questions but I'm going to ask the one that really means a lot to me uh, the wonderful film it's so moving and relevant um, oppressor oppressed um, rebel I ally or just a silent watcher. These are the roles you can play when something like this is going on and it's going on right now and you do a wonderful job of bringing all of them in the film and uh, you know, giving due importance. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why it was important for you to have all of those characters uh, represented and what did it mean for the actors to play that uh, in, in current environment because you're definitely sending a message when you do something like this. Well, the characters are all from Hillary's book, so I didn't add any characters that weren't there. It was just important that everyone be rounded and be present. And just in terms of acting, I just think of it as this. Like, there's two choices in a scene. Either you're lying or you're telling the truth. And so then you just, everything is based on that. You decide what you're doing and then do it. And I just leave, leave that to them. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, it was moving. You know what I mean? And, like, sort of liberating to be able to have that power because D created such a safe box for us because no matter how much it looks like we hate each other on screen... As soon as they say cut, you know, like, we're all there for each other. Some of my hardest days brought tears to other guys' eyes. You know what I mean? There were, you know, a, a day where I finally did break down where Rob Morgan just held me. You know what I mean? And was that father to me at that time because we became family, you know? So hopefully through our unity, no matter what message we're sending particularly, you know, like, hopefully through our unity we can show that, you know, strong things can happen because we all need each other. You know, that's what the film shows and that's what the execution of the film shows. Yeah, I felt fortunate enough to uh, bring a voice to the voiceless. I feel like there's uh, countless Hap Jacksons of America that uh, if at any chance got any type of recognition, I felt this was a chance to put it in moving picture, you know. 
and uh, give give a voice to like my grandfather, my great great grandfather, my great grandfather. So, yeah, I was I was very uh, invested in just basically giving a voice to the voiceless. So, thank you. Thank you all very very much. Thank you, Dee. Thank you, Cast. These were flawless performances. This is uh, this film takes us in so many very uh, delicate places and also very extreme places. You know, I I feel it's so key that you have two lead actors that have such a careful you know careful touch and, and really are attuned to every little moment. Uh, could you talk about how you you found and and, and chose these these two the two main actors? Um. um. Uh, Geza Morchani, who plays Andre, he's an amateur. Uh, he was for 20 years the director of the biggest uh, literary publishing houses of, in Hungary. So not, so not an actor by profession? Uh, no, 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 no. And never ever thought about uh, acting in anything and he's not planning to continue <laughs> this, this career at all. Um, uh, there are certain roles where you can work only with a professional actor. For example, it was Maria's role, mm -hmm. like that. But I knew that Andrew's role is is, is monolithic, and and the main um, point is is to have somebody with a very strong presence and um, a sort of credibility of the character, a sort of charm, a sort of secret. Um, so first of all, I needed a, a real personality. And uh, he was such a guy with an amazing, amazing sense of humor, great discipline, big deaths, many, many life experiences, not all of them very easy. So um, uh, he was very surprised when I asked him um, he asked me one night to think about, and I was really nervous because I have had no second choice. I, I didn't make any uh, casting session with anybody else. And even with him, I made one just to prove him that he can do it. So before that, I told already to my producers that we have, we have the guy. And, and for, for, the, for, uh, for the actress? Yeah. For yeah. Alexandra, Alexandra, I wrote the role of the psychologist for her. I know her, I knew her from uh, theater school. Uh, I saw her in, um, in theater. She is playing in a very, very good, probably the, the best uh, theater in Budapest. Um, and she is a very, very, very different young lady. A very sexy, outspoken, hot chick, really. <laughs> and um, so uh, somehow the, the role of the psychologist fitted her 
perfectly. I casted uh, her for it. I asked her so she knew this. And then for several months, for five months at least, I was uh, looking for Maria. And I uh, asked her several times to come as a partner um, to help. Uh, and, um, and this idea came back to me again and again that I should try her because I trusted her talent and trusted that sort of real magic actors, only actors are able uh, to, and not the amateurs, they are uh, able to make other sorts of they magic. Have their own magic, yeah. <laughs> to really transform themselves into somebody else. And um, it, it was just, Quite recently, by the way, during a Q&A that I realized what I was looking for and what I missed in all the other wonderful and absolutely talented actresses. This Maria is very vulnerable, but also very strong. She's a powerful person. And uh, I was looking for somebody who can be both in the same moment not once vulnerable, once strong, but be completely vulnerable and strong in the same moment. And, and she was able, she, she really deeply understood the script, why I wrote it and so on, and she was an amazing partner. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's able to act with on such a level of fine detail, just the particular look that she gives that character's eyes, you know, I mean, there, it's, it's sort of a, it's, there's a hardness and a softness in, in, in the eyes that she has. And you can tell that she kind of has a problem connecting, but she's absolutely sure and, and knowledgeable about other things. It's an interesting combination, yeah. Um, I, I, I also wanted to ask uh, about just the, the visual design of the film, which is, uh, also has a sort of precision to it. Uh, I mean, you know, the way you compose images, uh, you know, especially with her, she'll be peeking out a little bit, or her feet will be picking out, peeking out. That's like the first time you see her. How do you, how do you go about doing that? Do you, do you storyboard in advance, or do you like, do with, with images, or how do you work with the cinematographer in doing that? Um, he, was, he was an amazing partner at uh, the start. Of, of the work, we just made a deal not to go for a style. Uh, it would have made this film, um, which was very sensitive um, in, in the making, uh, stiff and somehow it, it, would, it wouldn't let you, I don't know how it worked today, but let you penetrate into the film. And um, we just focused always on what we really want to say with that scene and we did one take in the scene and what is really the function of the scene in the whole. And um, it needs an unusual focus from a cinematographer and he was amazing in that, and not only him, but uh, many colleagues understood that uh, the tiniest detail, if it's not decided and chosen and executed uh, with the precision of 
of, of the heart, how to say. Uh, so not fitting to some style, but to fitting to, to the depths of, of that moment, then we, um, we don't have a, a bit weaker film, but we have a very, very bad film. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was always there, and I knew it in advance, and I told to my colleagues, this is a film like that. It, it works with, with that sort of margin, of safety margin mm -hmm. that yeah. more or less all, all films have. But I, again and again, I was surprised how, how sensitive it is. Um, so we, all of us, we had to focus really. Yeah, no, I think you hit that sweet spot. <laughs> The style. Uh, I want to make sure the audience has, has a chance to, to uh, ask questions as well. Um, any questions from the audience? Yes. Oh, way in the back there? Please. Did everyone hear about uh, hear this? It's, uh, the question is about the idea of the shared dream of the deer. What, what was the thinking behind that? Um, I really don't know how it came to my mind. Uh, I just wanted to push these two characters into a situation when they are really forced out of their little shelter, which is also a prison cell. This little gray routine, daily routine, what they have, um, which is really miserable, but safe. And both of them take a risk. It's more visible the risk what Maria is taking because she's wandering in an unknown territory and she's making discoveries. But that one single step what this man has to, to make, for me it's as big as Maria's because he knows very well what he is risking. He knows how painful um, it can be um, to be refused, um, uh, to open up towards another person and, and then uh, not being accepted. Um, so um, I thought, I really don't know how it came to my mind, but I thought, yes, this is something. If you uh, realize one day that your neighbor, your colleague, is dreaming the same dream uh, for who knows how long, um, then you just can't go to work the next day and say, oh, hello. <laughs> and they have to do something. And from that moment when I had that idea, I really just had, I, I had the two characters in my mind. I, I had the feeling I, I know them very well. I, I didn't have to uh, construct them. Um, from that moment, I just had to watch them and write down what I see. Mm -hmm. um, their reaction uh, to a situation and to the reaction of the other one. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's such a beautiful way of expressing that idea of how do you know if the other person feels the same way? <laughs> it's just a very nice way of, 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 of uh, illustrating that. Um, another question? Uh, yeah, how did you shoot the scenes with the two, two deer? They're, they are very well cast as well, I think. Well, um, it, it seems funny, but there was a deer casting. 
and uh, and I was really looking for Maria, for Alexandra, and for Andrea. Um, in the case of uh, of of Maria, um, Pizza is the name of the female deer. Um, you when you watch her, you think, yeah, it's just deer. All the deers are similar, but if there are 30, you would point immediately to her, yeah, this, this is her, this is Alexandra. Um, they are extremely different. And um, to tell the truth, we used lots of um, tiny tricks with, with the cinematographer um, to make you more receptive to the uh, special traits. The camera is never an, in an observing position uh, when, when we show the deers. Uh, it is a, a very, also the editing is that sort of invisible uh, editing, uh, Hollywood editing, what you use when you uh, shoot humans in interaction. There are lots of over the shoulder and uh, for example, we, we shot everything with two cameras, very close to each other with different lenses. And then you can cut from a close-up to a wider shot uh, or inverse uh, the same way as you make it with actors because you can ask an actor to repeat. So somehow unconsciously you, f you feel, yeah, they are humans because, yeah, yeah it is edited the same way as I'm used to watch humans. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. I, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, you mentioned the editing uh, in those particular scenes, um, but I, I, throughout the movie, I was also really struck by the the tempo of the film, which is this very uh, a kind of gradual, uh, consistent uh, thing. That that would, seems to be a high priority for you in, in in putting it together. Is that right? Yeah. Um. Uh, again, I'm very. Uh, thankful to a colleague, to uh, the editor I worked with, um, because uh, this this sort of uh, um, the the tempo of the film is also a dramaturgical element, and in certain places for us when we worked on it, uh, we also articulated it to ourselves. The, the exact meaning of of that um, of that tempo. So, for example, also when when we show uh, these tough scenes at the not at the very beginning, uh, the slaughtering. You know, they they come to work, they uh, drink their little coffee and chit chat, they kill the animals. There is a, a break, they smoke a cigarette, and there is just some little silly music from the radio, and the, the cows and bulls are silently waiting that the killing continues. So it, it, is, it is a very, it's a relentless um, um, rhythm and I didn't want to make a peak um, uh, when the killing is because it's, I think it's more serious 
this way. And it was the same time for the suicide. She goes home, she washes the dishes, she gathers the clothes uh, from the balcony, she breaks the door, she cuts her wrist. And, and again, no any... There's no huge climax or something. Yeah, like. in the editing, because it doesn't need yeah. that sort of help. Yeah. Uh, By the way, jumping back, oh, yeah. it was six days shooting with, with the deers, but it needed several months of, uh, of preparation. First of all, with Goliath, the male one, who was an amateur, who never worked in <laughs> films, like Pitzer, uh, she worked in big American blockbusters. <laughs> Um, we can't, I have to know which film, which blockbuster was <laughs> it. Probably Red Sparrow or something, right? Uh, anyway, it was hard to convince the animal coordinator that we worked with Goliath because it meant for him a several months long um, process to get Goliath um, to um, accept uh, first this animal coordinator, then us as a partner. Hmm. You cannot tr train a deer, but you have to make them accept the closeness and also somehow it's a partnership what, what was built. Oh, fascinating. Uh, I think we're sort of running toward the end of our time. We have one more question. Uh, we can have time for one more question. Um, just if I miss you, just raise your hand high. Oh, there in the corner there, yeah. Uh, the question is about oh. the apology uh, to Sandor and the, and the significance of that. Thank you. Thank you for this question. Um, uh, just today I met um, an old friend from here, from New York, um, and uh, I showed him the film half ready. And uh, he told me afterwards that was the first moment when uh, he apologized to, to Shandor that he was really deeply touched. Um, it's, um, it's so simple and it happens so rarely and uh, it would just make our life so much more easy if we would do that, if we, if we wouldn't be ashamed to, to say I'm sorry sometimes. Um, and although the writing was really a very, very quick when I wrote the second draft, I mostly worked on the secondary characters because we don't follow their stories, but all of them can have such a big story secretly as Maria and Andrea. Okay, all right, well, <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. 
To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.